You can give him a round of applause to you. <laughs>
Well, she was right. She said it's not. You know. So, um, and uh, before we get started, uh, Tazar correctly said, and I want to continue to express, we're going to have a seminar forum discussion today. So uh, I don't plan to lecture for an hour and a half and then see if you have any questions. Um, I have four or five or six different blocks of material we'll address, and I'll kind of get us started in it. But really, if you think about learning, it happens a whole lot more when we're, when we're interacting. One, participatory learning is more effective. But also, let's think about our doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Okay, the Holy Spirit, uh, let's imagine I was a famous person. It doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit came in with me. Okay, let's just see if the Holy Spirit manages to get to you all, right? As followers of Jesus, the Holy Spirit resides in all of us. Okay, so we will all learn from God directly as we interact with each other. Now, none of us is God, so anyone can err. I'm not talking about that. But as we ask questions, as we share some thoughts, and obviously, as a discussion gets going, that is an interactive learning method, but God will teach us one with another. So that's the theological basis for form. It's not just a teaching method. It's also how we can learn. So let's all participate. And if you're feeling a little shy, or you feel a little nervous, like the question's not, your comment isn't as important as the person next to you or whatever, remember, the Holy Spirit lives in each of us. And so you might be saying some things and sharing some things that God is going to use to teach. So let's all participate. I'll kind of launch us into uh, each section, but I'll be asking you all questions, and they're not rhetorical. <laughs> I'm expecting you all to jump in and, and, and participate. So first, uh, I'd like to start with this thesis. Jesus presumes true Christians will be a minority. Jesus presumes true Christians will be a minority. And I'd like to start by looking at uh, a passage in John, John 15, 18 and 19. And maybe if I could have one of you read that, that would be helpful. Uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 15, verses 18 and 19. Who would read that out loud for us? This isn't even complicated because the Holy Spirit already inspired it. You don't even have to be, you know. Yes. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Key phrase in this, these couple of verses is the world. And so to start thinking about our topic, I think we need to understand what the world is. As you read those two patches, two verses or heard them read, how would you define world in this context? When John, you're talking about reporting Jesus' teaching, when that word world is used, what does it mean? It's the world hated you. What, what does world mean in that context? What does it not mean? So we're chosen out of, so it's that place where we were, but we are no longer because we're coming from, coming out of that, so something would come out of. Okay, so the world is a place we no longer are, but it's a place that we came out of. What would characterize the world that we came out of? What are characteristics of that world? Living for yourself. 
self versus God's word, I think is a good contrast. What else? Yes. So there's something in the world that's uh, that's human-centered and not spirituality. You're alluding to God-centered. So there's a distinction there. Very good. Other thoughts? What's the world? Or what is it not? I'll give you a hint about what it's not. Uh, we came from vacation on the way here. We came here from our vacation in New Zealand. We saw some very beautiful mountains, some very beautiful sunsets. That's the world, right? Is that what John's talking about? I kind of loved it in a certain sense, right? <laughs> very beautiful. I appreciated the beauty, I would say, you know, but I think it's fair to say I love those mountains. Um, there's some things I loved um, in a regular sense. Um, so John is not talking about the planet. Jesus is not talking about the planet Earth. He's not even talking about the totality of every human being in the, in the earth. Um, he's, using, he's giving this a theological sense. So one, we have to recognize in the Bible, there's different ways the world is used that are all valid. You can talk about the world as the totality of all humans, but that's not really what he's using it here. Other thoughts on what the world is? Char- characteristics of the world? I'll give you a definition from uh, David Wells, a professor of theology. Um, His definition of the world that I've adopted is a system of beliefs, values, institutions, right? Systems of authority structures and all that. A system of values, beliefs, and institutions that puts man at the center and relegates God to the periphery. Okay, so... It's things people believe, it's values they have, it's systems of the world. We all know if you want to get registered, if you want certain things to happen in a city, there's procedures, there's bureaucracies, there's systems. Well, you put them all together, that set of systems, whether it's government, whether it's anything else, those institutions, the way education is done, the way finance is done, the way family is done. So you have all of those things. And if you put man in the center, meaning humanity is opposed to deity, mankind is opposed to God, that puts man in the center and either puts God on the fringe, on the outside, or sometimes I tend to think mankind just kind of pushes him off the edge of the docket, right? So he falls off into oblivion and God is not even discussed, okay? So where humanity... And the interest of humanity and the thinking of humanity is central. And God's word, God's will, God's character, God's nature, all things divine become a distant second or perhaps not even discussed at all. Okay, so that helped me define world and understand what world is. Um, And so if we, well, let me get back to our passage. Um, So the world hates you. Know that it hated me before you. If you were of the world, so if you're characterized by the world, okay, then by definition, God is central in your life, can't happen. So that's that's the the dichotomy. That's the difference. Okay? So Jesus starts off talking about the world. 
And let me ask a, a further question, and I want you to think and answer. What is the significance of calling it the world and not using terms we find in the Bible, other terms like Gentiles, nations, Romans? Okay, so if Jesus had said, if the Romans hate you, if Gentiles hate you, if the nations hate you, know that they hated me first. What's the difference? He didn't say that. So what's the significance of calling the system the world and not Gentiles or nations? And if you have a question about my question, feel free to answer, <laughs> to ask that question. You understand the question? What's the significance of using the term world instead of one of those other terms? What else? It's a lot bigger. It's not one, it's not one particular group of people will not like me. This is the united of everybody together who is not following Jesus. Then it's suddenly, yeah, things become a lot bigger and weightier mm -hmm. than one particular group of people. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah, so it's big, it's everything, and it's pretty complete and non-negotiable. They're not going to change. Good. What, what else? What's the significance of the phrase world? It kind of makes you unable to escape. Like there's, mm -hmm. no escape. there's no like, oh, I'm away from the Gentiles. Yes. It's a world. Yes. lack of escape. And it makes you off from other worlds, not just another, you know Sure. Yeah, no, that's, I, I like that. That the world, you can't, there's no place you can go where there's not the world. Um, very good. Welcome. So first you got onto the idea of the world is the originator of things that are worldly and the idea of worldliness. 
Um, and another thing I was thinking about as you were talking was the, um, that's not always a specific person. It might be a particular artist, but it's that, for me, it's, it's the newspaper. When I read the International New York Times, it's the paper, the newspaper I read electronically, but uh, uh, it's not one writer. It's kind of this, this system that's out there. And so sometimes the world isn't a person. It's this intangible value system that a lot of individuals contribute to. But I can talk about my friend Joe, who might be a worldly person, but it's different when it's, you can't even touch the person. Who, who created this mindset that I get from music or from media or from um, billboards? As you, you, somehow it's just out there. So sometimes the world isn't a person or represented by an individual voice. It's this, this system or something that's out there. What else? See, I think that's, that's part of it, too, that um, it doesn't, by definition, make it a different ethnicity. You see, so if you're in Jesus' day, there can be worldly Jews and godly Gentiles. It's not nationally derived. So it's not the Romans, right? It's not the oppressors of Palestine, which they were nationalists in Jerusalem. We all know that. They were zealots in Jesus' day, right? So the world now becomes something that is, that transcends nationality. So I think yeah, that's part of it. That So we came from it. So people from my nationality, ethnicity, interest group, uh, ethnic background, uh, um, all that, that could be part of the world. And whoever's of a different nationality, of an oppressing, of a majority status, and we'll get at this in a minute, may not be world, may or may not be worldly. So it's not defined by nationality. That's part of what I was kind of getting at when you think of majority-minority thing. It's not defined by ethnicity. It's defined by philosophy and by faith system. Other thoughts on the significance of the word world as opposed to ethnicity or nationality, Gentiles, Romans. Well, let's just kind of get to the, the core of this question, of this verse. The world hates you. Or he starts off with, a, if the world hates you. Um, let's just ask the question. Why would the world hate you, being disciples of Jesus? In this context, why would the world hate them? What are the motives the world would have? And some are right in the passage. You can just read the Bible and you get, get at the beginning of the answer. But it'll take us into the minority-majority question immediately. Why does the world hate us? Because they hated Jesus. Very good. Why did the world hate Jesus? No, this is very good. Um, maybe I'll rephrase it a little more pungently. We have a distinctive odor, okay? 
And what you call that um, will reveal your theological framework, um, which is exactly what you got out from the passage, uh, the Pauline passage, that we have an aroma that's characterized by Jesus, who the world hates. So if we smell like Jesus, the world hated Jesus. The world can't like us if we, if we smell like Jesus. Um, but why would the world think that we smell bad? Life, death. I mean, Paul is interpreting it for us. But why would the world think we smell bad? Why does the world hate disciples? Or why did they hate Jesus? I can shift gears. Why did Jesus get crucified? Yes. Why was he crucified? Yes. That's absolutely true. He claimed to be king. Now that's discussed in the Bible. Um, and he preached a different set of rules, um, a different set of beliefs and values. But you don't crucify every crazy person, right? I mean, uh, we won't have to walk far. We're going to find some crazy people in our city. They're in every city, right? You, you meet crazy people all the time. You don't crucify them. You might choose to lock them up, to take them out of society, but you don't kill them, right? So why was he crucified? I mean, you're right on. I agree completely with your answer. Why was Jesus crucified? Why did the world hate him enough to kill him? Yes. He was influential, is influential. He's threatening their values, the way that they've set up this world. If this truth is true, then that changes the way that society works, the way that my life works, the way that this. And so as Jesus, if we are living like he has commanded us, there is this threat, this tension between the two. Yes. So one, the teachings of Jesus, who and what he represents are a threat to the world order. We're talking, who just finished med school? You just finished med school, right? Uh, some of us have spent a lot of time in some kind of academic training, in some kind of preparation. Uh, let's imagine, let's finish out your future. You do a year of uh, your current internship, what, what was it called? You do a year of internship, and then let's imagine you choose to do a residency, and then you choose to do, uh, work under somebody else, and you're just about to have your your own name, um, Dr. Surgeon so-and-so. You've worked the system for now six, seven, 10, 11, 12, 15, however many years it is, let's call it 15. You're just about to get there and then somebody changes the system. Okay, this happens in every institution, by the way. It doesn't matter if it's a medical or legal or political. Um, uh, the governor could change, right? The, the, the laws could change, the, all these things could change. The president can change it. And so you get all the way to the end. You're just about to be established because you've gone through the whole system and it get changed. Nobody likes that, <laughs> right? That's a small system. Jesus taught things that people intrinsically recognized would mess up the whole system. And if you're a power broker in the system, you don't, you don't want it to change. When I was about to finish my PhD, <laughs> they changed the rules the next year. <laughs> They made it easier. I was mad, actually. <laughs> but, you know, when they change the rules, you don't want to change it on you when you're getting towards the end. Um, so, one, the world hated Jesus because it has a system it wants to protect. What else? 
Jesus is a threat to that system. What else? Why does the world hate Jesus? That's right. That's right. That's right. So Jesus is going to present an alternative God, an alternative worldview, an alternative structure. Um, and that's why it's hate, not disapprove of. I can disapprove of a new system at a university, but the hatred, the anger, the violence that comes to the minority is because there's two divinities, right? There's the world and there's God, they're two opposing systems. So if you look at John, the world and the gospel are, are presented in dichotomy. There's only two options. There's either this God or this God. And so Jesus is undermining the whole system that the world offers, the, the beliefs, the values, the institutions, the structures. So he's a huge threat. So thus it provokes hatred and anger to those who will cling to the world, okay? And so that's why there's hatred, because there's valid threat. You're either going to believe in this God or that God. So, I mean, this is it's not new. If you think about the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness, of course they're at war because they're by definition opposing kingdoms. And when we start talking about majority-minority questions, I think we need this framework in the background that it's primarily a this world, other world distinction that there is no way out of. Okay, there's not a way, and we'll talk about what if we became the majority? That doesn't solve the problem. Okay, that actually typically makes it worse, um, but we'll get there in a minute. Um, so there's a spiritual kingdom question going on in the background, and Jesus presumes his people will be minority. So we have to start with that presupposition because Jesus does. The world will hate you. The analogy of world wouldn't function if the world were 16 people, right? If there's only 16 people, Jesus would talk about them differently. If those 16 people hate you, well, let's talk about what to do. You can't call them the world if they're a small, tiny, irrelevant minority. Now, when Jesus says the world, it linguistically makes sense because it's the majority. So Jesus is telling us when we become his disciples, when we become his people, when he constitute ourselves as a church and say, we want to be the people of God, we will be a minority. That's the assumed starting point. Okay? So it helps us to say, oh, it's not that we do something wrong. <laughs> it's not something unusual. It's not something bad. It's not something that God didn't notice that you're a minority, that we're a minority. That's the presumption. Okay? Secondly, it helps us understand that there's something behind that. It's not the Muslim majority, okay? That's not the issue. The issue, issue is the worldly majority, which has all kinds of people in it, all kinds of religions, 
all kinds of ethnicities, all kinds of socioeconomic groups. The world is the majority that we're fighting with, okay? And some of my people, whether they be Christians, whether they be my ethnic group, whether they be my nationality, whatever, some of my people are actually part of the world, right? I mean, there's Jews in the world in Jesus' day. Um, there's Americans in the world in my country, right? So um, it's not an ethnic, it's not a religious distinction. It's a this kingdom or that kingdom distinction. Jesus presumes his people will be in the minority. Uh, one other reason why I present it that way, I am Presbyterian, and you're going to figure that out when... Uh, of course, we're going to talk about the, the choosing that happened in this verse. Jesus says, I chose you out of the world. According to verse 19, what happens when Jesus chooses us out of the world? I'm not debating election. If you want to debate that, we'll talk about that later. Jesus chose us. He says he did. What happens when he chooses us? Read the end of verse 19. Yes. So, according to verse 19, why does the world hate us? Because Jesus chose us. Okay? So, it could be that you don't like being in the minority. I don't like being in the minority. I, I don't like to lose. I got used to it. but you know. I, I don't like to lose. I, I, like to, I would like to have power. I would like to get the vote. I would like to get my positions passed. I would like to have the things I'm interested in and succeed, I like that, okay? As a minority person, sometimes we don't like that. That's not fair. I don't like that. I, I get upset when I lose. I get upset when my candidate loses. I get upset when my positions and my beliefs aren't represented, okay? In the last two or three years, some things have changed in the United States, not just in the last month and a half, but over the last several years, there have been some Supreme Court decisions, some new laws, some regulations that have been passed, that I don't like, and I do get upset about it, okay? So when there's things that happen to us as a minority, theologically, where do we start? The world hates us because Jesus chose us. So if you want to be upset, the first person to go to is Jesus. But you see the logical problem, right? <laughs> Why did you choose me? <laughs> is that really what you want to do? I mean, you really want to go there? <laughs> you know, yeah. Sounds like we've, we've addressed this topic before. <laughs> yeah, we can be upset about God's choice, uh, but that choice of election for a purpose is the same as the election for salvation. There's not two different choosings, right? So when God chose us, he chose us, and he made us a minority that will be hated. So theologically, you see where that puts us? Because it's a different framework from how to think about being a minority. We're not a minority because of our race, because of our religion, because of our economic status, because of the way a certain election turned out. We're actually a minority because Jesus chose us. His choosing caused us to be a minority and even caused us to be a hated minority. Now, it's fair for you to say, you come from America, you know? <laughs> uh, the minority-majority question is very different for you, and that is true. But recognize, we're talking about, what, about John. Jesus, neither Jesus nor John were Americans. So uh, this comes from a scriptural teaching uh, from the Middle East. So Jesus presumes that, Christ, that Christians will be, true Christians will be a minority. Um, any questions on this kind of theological background to the minority-majority question? 
1519. Yes, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you, is what I have in the ESV. Sure. So um, I can't remember if I'm going there later or now, but I'll kind of get at it right now. Um, the reason the world hates us is because we're not of the world. Okay. <laughs> Think about, um, I don't know how your school groups go, but when I was in school, 15, 17, there were some clear groups of people, right? And my group, it was t tended to be, are you an athlete? Are you part of the wealthy group? Are you part of the group that's doing drugs? You know, there's different groups, okay? And those social groups were very strong, okay? So uh, they had the power to include and exclude. And so what John is saying, what Jesus is saying, is that you used to be part of the group, but now Jesus chose you and put you in another group. You're no longer part of that group. And so now the group feels like you betrayed them. You used to be one of us. You used to share our values. You used to worship our God, humanity, humanism. You used to have our values. And now you reject our values. You worship a different God. Oh, right, right, right. Well, so that person has a different question. Why didn't Jesus choose me? That's a funny question when you get to the election discussion because you can't know that Jesus didn't choose you, you know. Um, but, no, they hated you because now you reject their, you follow a different God. And so that's why the world hates us. That's kind of the way I would take it, is there's a spiritual reason, because there's a, a betrayal. Okay, let's, let's talk about Baal. You know, in the Old Testament, you know, the, uh, one of the Mesopotamian gods was Baal, and, you know, so Elijah and the prophets of Baal, one of the Middle Eastern gods. So these people worship Baal, and now... We worship another God. We're no longer faithful to Baal, okay? We have betrayed true Baal worship by becoming true worshipers of Yahweh. So the Baal worshipers now hate us and will persecute us. That's kind of what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I chose you out of the world. I'm not of this world. You might remember in John 1, 11, Jesus says, uh, John says in the prologue, uh, Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Now, that's not a usage of the term world, but he came to the Jewish people, his own. He was Jewish, and they rejected him. They didn't receive him so because he was not of their type. He was a true worshiper of Yahweh and not a nationalistic guy. That's kind of a different point. So the reason the world hates Jesus is because he's from another world. He's from another kingdom. Um, yeah. Other questions? On the theological framework, because it explains to us that we'll always be a minority. And what I wanted to look at for just a minute, um, no, I was going to give you a break and tell you a couple stories uh, about the world, how the world hates those who are not its own. So we served in Kazakhstan uh, for 18 years, and uh, we were part of a youth ministry, uh, helping launch a national youth ministry that worked in some different countries. And I want to tell you about some youth workers in Nukus, Uzbekistan. So, former totalitarian state of the Soviet Union. Now it's its own country, Uzbekistan. Uh, they're 
a totalitarian state, which means the government controls and runs everything. And they forbid private meetings of any religion. Um, they favor Islam. And so if you're registered, you can have your meetings. But if you're Protestant, you can't have any meetings. So they not only limited the number of Protestant churches that could exist, it was like 10. And uh, they would let new churches register, and they would close down old churches. So the number always stayed at 10. They would accept the bribe to get new churches, um, and then close down the other churches as if they were opening new churches. Um, so pastors who lead churches in Uzbekistan, who we worked with, um, regularly went to jail for their faith. They were regularly persecuted for their faith. The secret police would come to their door because they're reading all their internet files and following all their people. They know when the people go would go to even a secret meeting. They'd go to their house, knock on the door, come in, say, we're going to search your house. Now, they didn't accuse them of religion. They accused them of selling drugs. So the police walk into the house, throw the drugs on the floor, walk around the corner, come back and say, hey, look at these drugs on your floor. Arrest them and send them to jail. Okay? Why did they do that? We can come up with a number of reasons. The president wanted to control everything. The president wanted to support Islam and hate Christianity. Um, the president was nervous about anything that, he, that wasn't officially registered. But we can see the theological reason behind it was that the world hates the children of light. There's not always a one-to-one -one relationship between why the world is hating Christians. Um, we can't always explain it directly, but we expect it. So we're not surprised. We're not happy. I remember talking to this pastor who'd been to, been to jail. Um, I discovered that we're about the same age. We had the same number of children. Um, our churches were, at one point, about the same size. I said, well, when did your church really start to grow? And he said, oh, after the fifth persecution. Fifth persecution. I hadn't been through one persecution. <laughs> and he's talking about the fifth time he got sent to jail. And the fifth time he was there. And they said, well, this time it was a little easier because my family was only under house arrest. So members from the church could come and slide food under the door for my wife and children to eat. <laughs> like, okay, I guess we're not really the same. Uh, you know, the police sometimes came to my church and they never did anything. They would just ask us questions, we filled out the forms and we were fine. It was a different country, different background. So we're not surprised to hear that the, the world hates the church, that the world persecutes Christians, that the world throws them in the jail for no reason. Sometimes we understand, oh, this is a particular president with a particular view. But sometimes we don't understand, we just know the world will never accept us. Okay, this will always happen. I'll tell one other funny story. Um, I mean, it's funny because it didn't happen to me. <laughs> <laughs> I work with this man uh, in Turkey who's an Iranian Muslim background Christian. So he used to be a Muslim. Um, he left Iran and went to, uh, to Turkey, a Christian in an attempt to witness to him, gave him a Bible. He didn't tell him what it was. He said, hey, this is a book that means a lot to me. You ought to read it sometime. He didn't even know what it was. He didn't pay attention to it. He said, oh, thank you very much. Put it in his luggage. He goes back across the border into Iran, <laughs> gets inspected at the border, says, what's this? He says, I don't even know. Some guy gave it to me. No, 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 no. You're a secret Christian. Put him in jail. So he's in jail, and he says, what made them so mad? I better read this book. So next time he goes back to Turkey, he goes and finds the Bible and starts reading it and became converted to Christ. Okay, so sometimes the world persecutes you uh, and unknowingly leads you to Christ. <laughs> so, um, so we're not surprised that the world does this. 
God is ultimately in control. I mean, that's a, a funny story. I mean, I'm sure he didn't think it was funny when he was in jail. <laughs> uh, but now he leads a ministry to other Iranians who come to Christ and helps train them. That's how I get, I get to know this man. But so we're not surprised that the majority persecutes the minority because it's the world persecuting disciples of Jesus that underlays this. Now, would somebody read for me uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 15? Because I want to ask, uh, I want to give kind of a corollary. Jesus warns us about the dangers of, th- of thinking like majority. So we know we're minority. And here Jesus is going to warn us about seeking or pursuing or thinking like the majority. Would somebody read 1 John 2, 15? Okay, so, so what are we not supposed to love? I know it says the world, but what does that mean? What's, what's he warning us against? Or let me put it more specifically to our majority-minority question. Um, what are the dangers of desiring and longing after and pursuing majority status? Okay, What are the dangers that this verse teaches us? about desiring and really wanting and wishing we had majority status. What are the dangers? couple of things in there. By pursuing majority status, what we're saying is we want to do it ourselves. If I have 51%, think about a corporate takeover. If I have 51%, I can do what I want. I don't need the minority. I don't need anybody. If I own 51%, I can do what I want to do. Well, think about that theologically. If we're the majority, do we need God? So it breeds this idea that if we're the majority, we can do what we want to do. We can accomplish what we want to accomplish. We can be the Tower of Babel people. We can build a tower to heaven. We can go to heaven up and back as we wish. We don't need God's permission, God's direction, God's help. What else? What are other dangers of pursuing and desiring and longing for that majority position? <laughs> I mean, in our, you know, in our, not of course, you know, when Christ comes again, but, but now in this world, he, he did say he will be mm-hmm. once hated by the world, so they come back and they find it strange. And to be 51, I mean, 51% is a very specific, but to be like the majority in the world mm-hmm. is maybe, maybe something that worldwide, you know, I mean, it's just not something that will happen to come again. I don't know if that's just. Yeah, no, I think there's, there's a good truth in that, that since that's not the way it's framed up, it's kind of the wrong way to pursue it, you know. So uh, you never hear me say, me say, oh, be careful when you get to 49%, don't evangelize too much because, you know, you know to get to 52. Uh, uh, but there's a thinking 
that says that somehow that's not the right way to look at it. Um, I think it's right. Um, Yeah. Other dangers. Dangers of pursuing and longing for the majority. So I think one danger is that we wouldn't depend upon the Lord and feel the same need. Uh, when I pray, and I don't want to make light of this, but if I've studied for 25 hours and I pray that I do well on my exam tomorrow, it's one kind of prayer. When my mother has cancer that we don't know if it can be cured or not, even the best medicine in the world, which she had, I prayed differently. Praise the Lord. He took care of her cancer. When we found out, you know, I was here with you, um, in the car with you, when we found out. Um, you pray differently when you can't do anything about it, you know. And so when you think about recognizing, I'm not in control here. I've got to ask God to do it because I don't have the majority status. So part of the desire to get to the majority is to be able to control things yourself and to be the Tower of Babel generation that says, even divine things I can do, they're in my power. There's another danger, um, and it's what I alluded to at the beginning, and that's sociological term, the Christian West. is a temptation if you become the majority, and you see this in early church history. Things changed when Christianity became an official religion and then the official religion of the Roman Empire. Society presumes you're going to be a Christian. And so then you, you're born into a Christian family. That makes you a Christian. It reshapes the definition of Christianity. And so that's an issue that, the, that in majority countries, in historical Christian countries, people face that everyone's presumed to be Christian because your grandfather was a Christian. Well, it's still a faith question. It's still a personal pursuit of God question. And so... My grandfather's faith may not be passed on to me. So the majority status tends to redefine how you think of what it means to be a Christian. And that actually might unintentionally redefine what Christianity is. That's why I had to make the comment at the beginning. Right? That I'm talking about spiritual Christianity. Of course, I'm a pastor. That's what I do. Um, not, I'm not a sociologist. But that's a danger of pursuing majority status is then you want to keep that 51%. Think about politics. If you have a parliament, you want that 51%, okay? Because so then even people who aren't quite with you, you want them on your 51% because you still want that 51%. And even if it's a little flaky, a little different, okay, that, that party guy, you know, parliaments have, you know, have several different parties. Um, I'll accept him because it keeps my majority. I think in Christianity we have the same issue. We, if, you, if you think like the majority, you might redefine what Christianity is. Other dangers you think of, of pursuing or thinking like the majority? So to kind of recap, what I was trying to get at was we are a minority. Jesus told us we're going to be a minority. We're tempted, whenever we're in a minority, to want to be in the majority. And that desire isn't evil. But we have to recognize there's dangers that come with it not be naive to those dangers because it could redefine the whole game. If you get the majority, you might not realize what you paid to get it and you might lose the core values you have. Um, so uh, I now want to ask some practical questions. So that was kind of the first sort of the theological block. Now let's ask a couple, two practical questions. The first one is, um, what are some advantages of being a minority? 
And I'm thinking again about this question, a Christian minor minority in a majority non-Christian setting. What are some advantages? <clears throat> this is pragmatic, so you don't have to have a Bible verse for it. This is just, what are some advantages of being a minority in a majority other setting? I could take a poll. Does anybody think, how many think there's no advantages? Anybody think there's no advantages? I know, I asked the question. Sorry. The question is, um, what are the advantages of being a minority in a majority non-Christian setting? So it's, this is the overall question is, how do we as a minority uh, responsibly live out our faith in a majority setting where the majority is non-Christian. What are the advantages of being a minority, or are there any? If you can't answer, then you think there's none. What are the advantages of being a minority? Hmm. I like that. Why do you think that is? I mean, one is you have no choice, right? You're, there's just maybe one or two or three of you on the, on the trip, and everyone else is nationality X, right? So you have no choice but to think of outwardly because uh, – but, but why, why, do you, why do you think you become more outwardly focused? So when you're a minority, you're forced to pay more attention to the majority, to study, to learn, to be observant, to survive, to live, to not drown. Um, yeah, so it forces you to become more attentive. I think that's true. Because when you're in the majority, you can be lazy. You just go with the flow. Do what everybody else is doing. You might do it thoughtlessly, and it might even be dangerous. But you don't even think about it to the same degree because everyone around you is doing it. If you're the minority, you pay more careful attention to the why, the what, What's over the next ridge? Where's the waterfall? Okay, that's, a, that's good. I like that. What other advantages are there are there to being a minority?
about certain things, you know what I mean, that are going if, if your paradigm is what's most comfortable and what's, what's easiest to be in, mm -hmm. of course it's not an advantage. Mm -hmm. It's a disadvantage to them. But if your paradigm is what's going to push me to be more like Christ, what's going to push me to be more loving for others, uh, and more self-critical about my own motives and my own doctrine, go back to scripture, because you're a minority, you're forced to do that. Mm -hmm. If that's your Yes. Yes. Yes, I think it's very insightful. I think the advantages of being a minority is it forces you to decide what's very important. And that's what you were getting at when you said the, um, is comfort most important? Well, comfort's important unless the comfort is lulling you to sleep in a danger. You know, if the gas is on in the room and you're going to fall asleep because you're on the couch, you're not aware of the danger. Well, it's terrible to be comfortable. You know, if you're uh, suffering from hypothermia, I know all about this. <laughs> if you're suffering from hypothermia, you, you, you can't lay down and go to sleep. You won't wake up, right? And so it depends on which, so the minority forces you to define what's your highest priority, and you can't ignore it as easily. I mean, you probably still can, but you can't ignore it as easily. It makes us exhausted. And the next question is going to be, what are some dangers of being a minority? And one is we feel overwhelmed. So that's what you're getting at. There's, a, there's advantages and there's dangers or disadvantages, and it is true threat of feeling overwhelmed, of, of just not being able to do anything because you're so in such a minority. Um, uh, that is one of the real dangers. But other advantages. I think there's some other ones out there. There's some other advantages to being a minority. Yes, I think it's very insightful that the, uh, you're forced to develop a stronger unity. And so, well, if you're in the majority, you might not work as closely together. You might not get to know each other, but there's only 3%, right? There's only a few people, and you know you're being surrounded. You work together. You lock arms. You, you appreciate each other, even with some differences and discrepancies between each other, because you're the minority. Now, it doesn't always work that way. Sometimes Christian minorities fight amongst each other to the end. <laughs> That's very sad. Um, but I'll tell you a little story about where my churches are in Kazakhstan right now. We were there for about 20 years and saw a number of churches, just small churches, about six get started. And the missionaries uh, ordained and commissioned all the national pastors to do, lead the ministries, and we left. Um, they're a tiny minority, but yet they don't get along as well. They'd rather fight about little bits of doctrine and little bits of practice and little philosophies of ministry. And I see six different parties going on. I'm like, guys, you know, when you're six against six million, okay, you probably ought to work together. Right? You probably stick together because if you're an opponent, if you're the devil, you separate them all. And you know, you know the story about hunting. If there's birds flying together, if you shoot the last one, the ones ahead don't know that he's fallen off. So you can pick them off one at a time and kill them all. If you shoot the first one, everyone sees it, and they scatter. Okay, so you get our six churches separated, they pick one off and one off and one off and one off, and pretty soon they'll be done. And I've told them that. I said, guys, you've got to work together. So it doesn't always work. But if people have a little bit of wisdom, being in the minorities forces you to unite, and you learn to build bridges of unity to have a chance to be able to um, uh, speak out in a minority setting. 
Other advantages? I think there's still a couple out there. Other advantages to being a minority, to being in the minority. Of course. So I'm, I'm kind of here, and I'm kind of learning in this too. Um, but I'm kind of hearing two tensions from um, all that's been, been talked about. One is earlier you mentioned how we need to be careful to not give up <coughs> some of the key doctrines, the key things that we believe in, just yes. for the sake of being a majority or being bigger, or yes. being more, because that's very dangerous. Because if you want to kind of be the world, I mean, uh, uh, you want to be being the majority is kind of the main highest agenda, then you will end up giving up some of the doctrines and warnings mm -hmm. against mm -hmm. that. You know, yes. So, so to, not, to not do that. Yes. So the warning there is don't, don't, uh, don't give up key tenets of the faith just for the sake of being majority because you should always expect to be minority. So yes, good. yes. And, and, and the other side here, which is also great wisdom, you know, I mean, and, and just saying that at the same time, you know, I mean, there is a reality of that when you're a minority, um, you should be wise in what you pick and choose to kind of battle or Yes. 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 So the 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 same here is more. If here it's don't give up key doc, key tenets of your faith for the sake of being majority. Yes. Here is don't um, be so nitpicky about some things. Right. You end up breaking up as a minority. Right. And those two things presented are seemingly paradig paradigmatic. Sure. Right? Sure. You know what I mean? Um, and contra seemingly contradictory, although they're not. How, right. How do you settle those two tensions? Sure. Um, maybe this, let's, let's pick a nationality question. So I was in Kazakhstan. Um, we had Russians, Kazakhs, uh, Uyghurs, uh, as well as just to our south, Kyrgyz. I mentioned Uzbeks. Um, Christians from those nationalities are going to be in the minority. So to get to your second point, I've got to be able to link arms with an Uzbek, with a Kyrgyz, with the Uyghur, with the Chinese, because we're right on the border of China, um, uh, with Uyghurs who don't have their own land, with Russians who used to be the majority ethnically, right? We're all different. We speak some different languages, and we might, we will get at this in a minute when we talk about contextualization. Um, I've got to figure out how to work with people who are different. My Kyrgyz neighbor will never be Kazakh. There's a lot of similarities, but there's some significant differences. The Uzbek neighbor. So we've got to figure out how to lock arms, maintaining our distinctiveness, distinctives and respecting the distinctives of those person next to me, but saying, currently our commonality is more important. You see, so I'm going to respect my Kyrgyz, Uzbek, Russian, because we've got to stand against the world. And that actually, that locking arms shows something to the world that we actually have more in common. Now, are the differences? Of course. I will never be Kazakh, right? Um, we got to decide some questions pragmatically. What language is this group going to talk in? We're speaking in Russian, Kyrgyz, Kazakh, Uzbek, uh, Chinese. What, what language are we talk? Right. So you, so you have all these questions that are important, but they don't have to threaten our unity. If we're in the majority, we might actually fight and split over them. You see, we say, oh, no, I'm not going to speak Kyrgyz, right? And so, uh, but in the minority, you learn to articulate your unity in a way that respects and understands the diversity in a helpful way. Um, but you would, you're right, you would face some of the same tensions because uh, in Kazakhstan, the Jehovah's Witnesses were also a minority, right? But, sorry, we can't do this, you know, can't do that part. That's a different religion. It's an offshoot of Christianity on a big tree, but it's too far off. So I can't link arms with you, even though you're a persecuted minority, <laughs> you know? 
And so, uh, so there are some of those tensions. But I think what it does is it forces you to unite with people with whom you're different. And one of the other points I was going to get at is it forces you to articulate what's most important. So let me kind of change gears. And I think we'll come back to your question specifically in, um, in contextualization. But um, uh, if you're a minority, you know you're going to lose more than half of the fights. Right? Think about playing professional basketball. I don't know if you guys follow the NBA, but I've never seen an, a, a basketball game in my country that was 80 to nothing. Right? You know that other teams are always going to score some points. You know you're going to fail at defense a lot. So if you're a minority, you know the majority is going to win a lot of the battles. They might win most of them. So when you decide what you're going to fight for, you choose wisely because you know you're going to lose some battles. So a minority has to think carefully about which battles are the top or the most strategic that we want to address, knowing that there's some battles we're going to lose. And if you know you're going to lose some battles, which battles in the worldly battle, this is not the other question, but this is the question of um, if I'm facing a majority of other religions in my country, which battles is it okay to lose? You know, so you might say it's okay to lose the battle of what do they call it? No drive Sundays. What's that called? Car-free. Car-free Sundays. Okay. Personally, I would like to be able to drive the church on Sunday. Okay. Um, for whatever reason, we decided we're not going to have cars on Sunday morning when I want to go to church. Um, or at least you got to go around the back. Or how does that work? <laughs> you know. Um, how about Car-free Fridays? Oops. No, we're not going to do that one. <laughs> you know. Um, so. I might say the right of freedom of assembly is more important than having the car-free day be sometime besides Sunday morning during church. Because I say, I want to be sure we can assemble. Not like in Uzbekistan. In Uzbekistan now, you can't have more than four people. Otherwise, it's an assembly and you can go to jail. Okay, I say, go up. I don't want to go to Uzbekistan. I want to be able to meet as 100 people. I want that freedom. So if I'm going to fight for one thing, I'm going to choose to fight. It doesn't mean I shouldn't have the right to drive to church on Sunday. It means I think I want to have, if I'm going to fight for one, I'm going to fight for the freedom to, to meet. That's an example. So what being a minority does is it forces you to strategically pick your battles. I think it's an advantage because you can be lazy if you're the majority. You want to fight about everything. And it's not that you shouldn't fight about everything, but in the minority, you're forced forced to choose one, two, three, four. And the other thing I want to say about the minority, very similarly, but a little different. Being in the minority forces you to think about how you would articulate what you believe much more carefully. Okay, Because you know in the minority people will misunderstand you. They will misrepresent you. They will want to say the wrong things about you. They will want to accuse you of saying things that you don't really say. You know that. You presume that. So when you speak, um, what was, who just did this? Yeah, maybe I don't want to get into U.S. politics. The president of World Relief just gave an interview to, I forget who it was. It was like CNN or some organization about the immigration crisis and the travel restrictions in the United States. I don't know if you follow all our American problems, but that's one of our problems now. Our new administration has is, is eliminated refugees and restricted certain travel 
um, travel of different visas to the United States. Uh, Indonesia is not one of the six countries, so you're in luck. Um, well, that deeply affects those of us who are involved in refugee ministry. No refugees can come for the next four months, and whenever they come back, I mean, they're going to come in a lot fewer. He gave an interview. We know the rules of media interview in the United States. They will pick and choose what they report from the interview. They won't let you pick and choose what, to, what they're going to report on. They will select. They might take it out of context. They might put two clips together that were actually far apart in the interview to make it sound like you said something you didn't say. You know that's what's going to happen. That's what the media does in the US. And he decided to give the interview because he decided strategically it was worth it to have a voice um, for what he believed was an important issue. But he was not sloppy when he went on TV. Right? When he went in for that interview, he was well prepared. He had thought about how to speak in a certain kind of English. <laughs> so you couldn't cut it up quite as well. And so his sentences were short, his sound bites for TV, right? Um, so he thought about how to give the interview. He planned it, he'd intentionally been as careful as he could, knowing he would likely be mis misinterpreted. So as a minority, we're forced to do that, which means we will speak more clearly to the issues of our day. We know we're gonna be misrepresented, we know we can't speak to every issue, but we'll be strategically forced to think, what are the top three or four or five or seven issues we wanna talk about? And how would we talk about them? And it makes us be better thinkers and better proclaimers, better representatives of the kingdom we represent than if we could be lazy in the majority, presuming, oh, I'm gonna get my way anyway. So it forces us to articulate clearly what we believe, and it forces us uh, to pick wisely what, which things we wanna talk about, um, which I think makes for good public representation. That make sense? Questions? Principles. Two people can agree about the principles that you don't want to agree to too much just for the sake of being a majority, mm -hmm. to where you lose the main tenets of your faith. But you also don't want to be so nitpicky when you're a minority, where you are unwise in thinking which battles to fight and which not to fight. Um, so two people can agree on that, but where they draw the line of what's what could differ. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think one thing I would add, or back to your, your question, I would say individuals, and here I'm speaking of an individual church, right, an individual domination or, or, or stripe, um, don't need to apologize for who we are. So as a reformed person, I have, a, I have a pretty long specific list of what I believe in. That some other person, some other tradition might be very Christian, but theirs is a lot shorter. And the two or three points actually aren't the same, you know, so you go, wait, wait a minute. Um, so I think the question would be, you know, back to my nationality question, do I eat with a fork or do I eat with chopsticks? Well, 
maybe it's fine for somebody to eat with a fork and somebody to eat chopsticks, and we can still work together. We're never going to change. You know what I'm saying? It's okay for one person to use a fork and one to use chopsticks. But we can work together, you know, um, and to figure out where it's the Jehovah's Witness question. That's off, you know, and then, of course, there's many grades in between. Um, but I think what I was trying to say is it's okay for me to say, you know, I'm a fork person, and I don't want to be criticized or have to apologize or have to defend for why I'm a fork person. That's just who I am. That's not important in this other discussion. We got, we got a, a majority who's coming on, and they ain't using forks. They're using you know, bazookas. You know, they're using weapons, and they're going to attack us. We've got to talk about some other things besides the fork chopstick question. But this is still part of who I am. Even if we agree to defend it, you know, I'm still going to use the fork, you know, because um, it's, it's part of our core. Uh, you know, that's, that's clearly cultural, um, but it can also be part of our core doctrines and values. So you know, the particularity of doctrine is something that's quite Presbyterian. We have a lot of particular doctrines that we love, and, um, and we shouldn't have to change them because we're the fork person, you know. Um, but it means there's some other utensils. You know, a third of the world uses hands and forks and chopsticks, and so maybe we can work together. And um, anyway. That is, one, real quick, that is one of the great things about Christianity is we have one faith, but many different nationalities, like the you know, well, missions conference, everybody's going to the African bar or whatever, but we all worship one God. That's yes. One of the many things about the Christian faith, you do not have to change who you Yeah, no, that is part of the beautiful thing, and that's what I get to see, just so you all know. Uh, I do travel to visit our different partners, um, and one of the most striking things everywhere is how we, we sing the same kind of music. I'm not talking about style. It's amazing when you hear a song that you can tell is the same song that's been translated, how that affects people. They're singing the same song, you know, but they're using drums, and I mean African drums. Um, uh, they're using an organ. They're using a guitar. Um, they're dressed differently, but we're all worshiping the same God. Is that picture? Um, well, you've been listening to me for a while. Let me ask my team uh, a question so you guys can hear from them for just a little bit before I go on to the next question of contextualization. Um, you all sometimes find yourselves uh, as a minority. Now, maybe not in your home or in our church together, um, but my wife is a photographer and uh, also an artist, and so sometimes in the arts community in the United States, um, that's predominantly non-Christian thinking. Uh, Drew works in finance, and um, sometimes uh, Christian ethics is not the first thing that comes to mind, you know, as he does that. And uh, Dana's a headhunter, and I'm not the, you know, not with uh, sticks and all that, but uh, uh, in personnel management, and he runs with uh, different places. So what, are, so what do you do when you find yourselves in the minority? What's the way that you try to represent your faith. What are things that have kind of worked well? And what are some things that you thought, went home and said, I don't think I represented Christ so well in that context. What do you do when you find yourself as a clear minority, whether it's your faith or the way you practice your faith or the kind of community you're part of? What are some things that, uh, some thoughts that you've had in those contexts?
happened more frequently in Europe and in some of the larger cities in the U.S. Um, the uh, you know, over dinner or you know, process of building a relationship when religion comes up, you know, it's very much. Um, it usually, it's very clear that if you are religious, you're not very intelligent. You're not very bright. Uh, you're simplistic. always feel my body react, you know, because you're thinking of um, your, your livelihood or your, your business or providing for your family or uh, your professional relationships or reputation. And what I've found is, if, at least in my experience, I uh, very quickly and uh, what's revealed to me is what, what have I been filling my mind with? And have I been in the Word? Uh, have I been uh, focusing my mind on what it is that I really because the temptation is sometimes there even without you realizing it to um, gloss things over to keep the conversation focused on business or on uh, keeping people comfortable rather than um, uh, rather than on uh, what is most uh, what is most dear. Um, so it's uh, for me it's been a like I said a sharpening experience to uh, remind me to stay uh, stay in the world. It is. I think I've got a small home. This everybody knows I'm a Christian and active in my faith. So I don't feel persecuted or a minority in my office. And I phone the boss. Even if they didn't like what I had to say, they would probably would say it. <laughs> but where I've seen my faith in the workplace probably more so is in just being honest with those in my office and having integrity with my clients. Because I, I really don't discuss faith and religion with people in San Francisco or um, you know Miami, Florida, on a 20-minute phone call. Faith and religion won't come up, so that, that's pretty rare. Um, but it can come up in uh, follow-up conversations on a personal level. Um, but that's where I've seen where I can be salt and light, probably more than anything. Even if the topic of religion or faith does not come up, if they know they can trust me and I'm honest and have a Hmm. I don't know if that your question. Sure, sure. That's where I've seen it. Well, thanks. Any thoughts from the art world?
Yeah, thanks. Thanks for all of you. And I think what um, one of the things I'm thinking about is uh, is Christians, and this is where we'll conclude in the, uh, later on. Um, but even as a minority, who will lose? We don't re- we don't always see what God is planning to do through our contact with the majority. Okay, so in all these situations, they're in a place where they're going to come in contact with somebody. And they can give witness and testify, even if the group decides they're stupid, or the group decides they're strange, or the group decides, I don't want to follow their religion. Um, we don't know what God's going to do in the life of an individual and how God is going to use our testimony, even if we lose, even if we're mocked, even if we're degraded, even if they say, oh, you're one of those Christians that are so stupid, and, and, and you lose, so to speak. Um, but you don't know what that other person in the room is going to do. You don't know that there's one person who heard that and thought, wait a minute, I respected what he said. I'm, not going to, I'm too afraid to speak in the group, but later on I'm going to go ask that guy. Or two years later, they're going to remember and talk to somebody else. There's so many things we don't know. So there's reason to give witness even when we get overwhelmed and lose and get crushed by the world. So, um, Well, I have another topic I want to discuss. This topic could go on for hours or we could try to keep it to a reasonable amount of time, but uh, that's the question of contextualization. Uh, we mentioned that in the advertisement. Um, what is contextualization? Is it necessary? Under what conditions is it necessary? And what, the way I want to start this part of the discussion uh, was to actually look at three different terms, and you'll kind of see I'm going to put them on a scale. Contextualization, syncretism, and accommodation is the way to talk about what happens in the middle. Okay, because the way I'm going to present it, I'm going to define those terms. Contextualization is primarily positive. It's a biblical mandate. But we often merge these three terms together, which is why we confuse and describe contextualization as an opponent. Syncretism is pretty much universally bad. But that happens sometimes in the name of contextualization. And so I want to define that. And then accommodation. Uh, so these are three biblical terms or three biblical things that come out of the biblical expression that I think will help us get at this topic. Contextualization is when the gospel takes on flesh in the community in which it's located. The reason I would say this term is exclusively positive is, is because it's defined by the incarnation, right? God, eternally divine, eternally existent, spirit without form, became man. He didn't have to become man, right? God is self-sufficient. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need to do or accomplish or prove anything because he's eternal and he's eternally good, eternally powerful. But he chose for the sake of his creation, for our sake, to become like us. So if you kind of walk through the theology of incarnation, incarnation was God's contextualization of who he was to his people so we could be redeemed both in the way he communicated to us so we could know his word and the way our salvation was accomplished through a like one, right? A man, a human died to save other humans. So that's why God became man. The way he chose to accomplish salvation was by becoming a man. So contextualization is based on the incarnational ministry of Jesus. He became flesh. He took on flesh. He became like us. Um, And if you think of uh, 1 Corinthians 9, where Paul says, the Jew, I became like a Jew. To the 
Roman to the Gentile, I became like a Gentile. I become all things to all men, so that some way I might, instead of, I can't quote it right, instead of I might win some. I mean, that's the way he ends that, that verse. So there's a biblical basis for contextualization, and that's where the gospel takes on the form, takes on the culture, takes on the language and certain things uh, of a particular culture in order to communicate the truth of the gospel. So that would be, I would say, contextualization. And if you look at Paul, if you look at Jesus, um, there's a biblical example of contextualization. Syncretism. Syncretism is a word that describes the combination of the best parts of all the religions in an area in an attempt to create the best religion for that people. Okay? So syncretism, uh, it's easiest to give you this example from Mozambique, a country where we have some partners. There's a church called the Zionist Church. Okay? It's practice, honestly, since there's nobody here from that church, it's the most bizarre thing I've ever seen. <laughs> okay? If you know something about African traditional religion, Okay, they still sacrifice animals. They still go to witch doctors. They still believe the stars control things. They still believe in all sorts of spiritual forces that cause all kinds of things. That's African traditional religion, and that was what existed before the colonial era. Then the Portuguese came in as Roman Catholics, and they had a couple centuries of Roman Catholic practice. Then um, there was a communist revolution. There were 20 years of communism. Okay, and and now we're where we are today. So the Zionist churches were started by these missionaries that were good Christian missionaries in the 1800s. But somehow these churches have now taken the best, they would call it the best, the best of African traditional religion, the best of Roman Catholicism, the best of some forms of Protestantism, which the missionaries brought, and the best forms of communism, and combine them all together to have one practice. So there's Zionist churches. In World Relief, our national partner there works with churches. But they sacrifice chickens. They pay money to the local pastor to get things done. Uh, I mean, to get spiritual things done, to get spiritual favors. He just puts the money in his pocket. And he's not serving them. It, it, so um, they, as good church members, go to the witch doctor. Um, and so they have parts of all the religions. So that's a classic case of syncretism. What the community thinks they've done, okay, is they've taken the best of African traditional religions, the best of Roman Catholicism, the best of the Protestant missionaries, and the best of communism, put them all together and made a new religion called syncretism, I mean, called the Zionist church. And we say that's syncretism. That's a form that some might try to call contextualization, but we'd recognize, no, that's idol worship. That's so false. I mean, uh, so our workers there have this difficult problem. How do you work with people who think they're Christians when they're not historic Christians of any stripe? I mean, they don't have enough Christianity in them to even call them. Christians. I mean, um, but they have the name church. Okay, so you have this group of syncret. This is syncretism, where you really are taking the best beliefs. So, to be honest, other missionaries in Indonesia have used the word contextualization and used it to talk about a form of reaching Muslims that, to me, feels like syncretism. There are, and I can say this honestly, there's some good teachings in Islam. There's one God. If you look at the Quran, there's many teachings of the Quran that are quite similar, if not identical, to teachings in the scriptures. So um, they've taken those parts, 
And then they've taken parts like, you know the son of God term? It's misunderstood. And so we're just not going to use the term son of God. They're taking the best part of Islam, simple, <laughs> and combining it with part of Christianity and making a new religion because I can't talk about Jesus without using the term son of God. Now, I can be careful on how I use it. That's a different question. But they've taken some reasonable parts of Islam, some reasonable parts of Christianity, combined them and talked about how people can be Muslim Christians. They wouldn't use that word, but that's the way I would. I'm like, no, that's actually very, very good syncretism. Okay, when you take the best of one, the best of the other, mix them together, make something new, that's syncretism. Okay, that's combining Yahweh worship and Baal worship, which Elijah was pretty clear in the Old Testament. Can't do that. So syncretism is when you simply take the best portions, combine them, and make a new religion. Contextualization is where the gospel takes on the form of the community and is made known to that community in a biblically faithful way, but in expressions to that culture. Accommodation, okay, this is going to be the, I'm forgetting if it's 1 Corinthians 9 or a different chapter in Corinthians. This is going to be the meat sacrifice to idols question. Do you remember Paul said this? He said, he talked about eating meat sacrificed to idols in the ancient world. And he says, I can eat anything with thanksgiving. Okay? Any meat, any vegetables, I can eat all food. Because anything taken with thanksgiving is a gift from God and I can eat it. So he theologically has the rationale to eat any food he wants. But he knows he's got some friends, some young believers in Corinth, who believe that the meat that has been offered to an idol is now contaminated. It's now connected with that idol. And if this young believer eats that meat, he will now become contaminated himself. So Paul knows he has the freedom to eat the meat, but this young brother is still confused about what it means. So Paul says, I will accommodate to my younger brother, to my weaker brother. I won't eat any meat for his sake, because if he sees me eating meat, then he eats meat, his conscience will be defiled. So he takes a principle of contextualization and applies it specifically to one guy. Um, so he accommodates to the younger brother. And so what you can sort of see is Paul has the freedom to eat it, but he can choose not to eat it. He can choose to be contextual in one of two forms, and that's what he did. Um, and so those three terms help me get at the questions involved in contextualization. Because we've all clearly been engaged in contextualization. What language are we... Are we Talking about, what, what language is our Bible? Hmm? Yes, it's, it's English. We're using the English Bible. Is, is there an original English Bible? Was this the Bible first come to us in English? No, no, no. came to us in Greek. And even though at our last conference we had a Greek speaker, he speaks modern Greek. So Yodis, the pastor of the church in Athens, uh, had a lot of fun with us because he's reading out of the Greek Bible. said, in the original Greek, of course you read Greek. But, um, so... Contextualization starts with language. Clear Protestant principle is that uh, we should read the Bible in the vernacular, in the language of the people. So it starts linguistically. There's cultural elements of worship. What do we dress? How do we dress when it comes to worship? Um, how do we assemble? What's our liturgy like? There's a variety of kinds of expression, um, and that's all a contextualization. It must be related to the culture related to the language, related to certain traditions in that culture. Um, so there's a, a number of things that we do to contextualize the gospel intuitively. But there's others, other issues where we can't compromise. 
I've decided I can't not use the term son of God. I can't not talk about Trinity. Now I can choose, and I have an accommodation not to talk about that first, but I've got to talk about God in the orthodox Christian way. I can't suppress that element of my Christianity. I can't make that accommodation. But I could, in a strongly Islamic context, use a different starting point than let's argue about the Trinity. Okay? I mean, I might start somewhere else, but I can't get through the whole gospel without talking about the nature of the divinity of Jesus and the nature of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. It might take some days to get there, but I've got to get the whole thing in. I've got to talk about all that. That's, if I suppress that significantly, to me, that's syncretism. That's the way I look at it. So you have a contextualization, accommodation, and accommodation I call it, it's the laboratory of contextualization. What are the issues and what are we going to choose, how are we going to flesh them out? Paul was working on that. People kind of debated it. They kind of, that's why it's some chapters in Romans and in um, 1 Corinthians. And then syncretism is kind of off, off the edge. So that's kind of an introduction. I wonder if there's some questions um, about how we think about contextualization, where the lines are, how to figure out. Um, and this might get to some of your question about some of those specific points of theology and doctrine. Um, uh, but anyway, that's kind of an introduction to the, the ideas of, of contextualization in a minority context. What questions or thoughts do you have or feedback or reflections? Yes. Paul came to his life knowing the truth that all things is okay. Um, so, accommodation by definition is he is a truth. Am I saying this right? Temporarily accommodate to his to his weakness, uh, so that eventually he can teach this guy all things okay. Yes, exactly. That's exactly it. Um, how fast that guy might learn that lesson or what the process could be it could be complicated. But no, that's exactly, I, I believe what Paul says um, is that I will, I have a freedom that I will choose not to use for your sake. So I think the way to frame it is out of love because I love my brother. I will choose not to use my freedom to help him grow. Paul uses the phrase weaker brother. And so the assumption is exactly what you said, that this weak, this weak, this young, this less mature brother will grow to maturity. But Paul does say, but I'll never eat meat again if it causes him to stumble. So he's actually not demanding this brother grow in some fixed time set. He said, I, my love for you is so great. I would even never eat meat for him. But because he calls him the weaker brother in the passage, it's the presumption that he will grow through to greater maturity. And one day he'll understand, oh, we can eat all the meat. It's not wrong to eat the meat. Um, and he'll have that freedom, and then the two of them can eat meat together. So that's, that is the presumption of the passage. We see that a lot, <coughs> at least where I live, and especially growing up with drinking alcohol. You know, a lot of people had a lot of problems with drinking alcohol that were Christians. But then there could be other Christians that were 
just as strong in their faith but could drink alcohol. You know, because we know that sacrifice needs a need or anything more. But I've seen that in my life a lot with alcohol. But then there's fascinating questions of culture in India when a Hindu background person comes to faith in Jesus, are they supposed to then eat beef? Right? See, they never ate beef. And that's when the whole question of culture and faith, is it a cultural diet? In which case, you don't have to change your diet to become a Christian. Right? You can still be a vegetarian and not eat beef. Or is it religious? It's just all mixed together. Um, should a Muslim eat pork? Right? Well, the, the Bible says, hey, you're supposed to eat it. Right? So there's no mandate. But you ask the question, is it cultural? Is it societal? Is it religious? And then those do get all blended. Um, but my thought on that would be that's where the church community is very helpful um, to where this idea of freedom and accommodation and loving service and loving sacrifice that's voluntary begin to play out and people express that love and you say, oh, in the body of Christ, we have a lot of freedom and we're all the time making a sacrifice for somebody. You know, so when I go to India, I don't eat beef. Now, I do eat beef when I'm in the United States, um, but I, I'll make that sacrifice. It's not a sacrifice for 10 days, <laughs> but, um, you know. Uh, other thoughts? Well, everything depends on why. Okay. So it starts with, let's pick the, the clear passage from the Bible. Um, what Paul is saying is, he says, he says a couple of cases. In the Roman world, there were people who, uh, let's say I'm a pagan. I go offer to Zeus this, this cow, and then I come serve it to my guest. What Paul says is, if he serves it to you, eat it. But if he serves it to you and says, you know, I offered this to Zeus, then don't eat it. Not for your sake. See, you could eat it. But for his sake, because you're going to witness to him to say, oh, no, I worship a different God. So if you think this is part of your worship of Zeus, I can't worship Zeus, so I'm going to choose not to eat the cow. Okay, so it's all about the why, um, why you choose to refrain or why you choose not to. So back to alcohol or certain meats. Jesus is pretty clear we have the freedom to partake in all those things if we do it with thanksgiving. And on the alcohol, I would say, um, if we do it by faith, using the I mean, kind of a stretch, but that which is not by faith is sin. You can drink alcohol by faith. I don't think you can get intoxicated and, and caroused by faith, right? So there's a line somewhere. Uh, but if you say you can do it by faith, that's the question, with thanksgiving. So we can eat everything, everything, with, by faith and with thanksgiving. So we are free. But if I'm a new believer with a drunken background, it will be many years and maybe a whole life where I will choose never to drink because I have this background. And I could be actually be very mature um, and choose never to drink because of my background because I'd rather, you see, so that could be a, a stronger brother. So there's a lot of whys involved. So there's not one rule that would apply to everybody. Um, but here's what does apply to everybody. If you think you're mature, then the responsibility is on you is to deny your freedom for the sake of other people. Mature people understand, I have freedoms that I would choose not to use. Okay, so that's what maturity calls for. So, 
if I have the freedom to drink, so I was a youth minister for a number of years in the United States, it's illegal to buy alcohol younger than 21. So if I'm working with 17-year-olds who have a drinking problem, I chose never to drink because they might have a problem. I can legally and morally drink, but I will choose not to because I don't want any of these 15 to 17-year-olds to stumble. They're having enough trouble already. So out of love for them, I will, repress my, I will suppress my freedom. So I don't think it answers your question, um, but there's a lot of different contexts, so I wouldn't say there's one answer. Um, Let me give one uh, illustration that Tim Keller gives on contextualization as it relates to ministry in the city, since that's quite your context. Um, he preaches in church planting that we should have a love for the city. Now you can see how you can take that too far. Okay, If you love the city so much that you do everything that the city's doing, and here he's sort of thinking the Augustinian city of man, meaning the world, as we talked about earlier, that you love all the entertainments and all the food and all the luxury and all the excess and all the things of the city. Well, if the church loves the city so much that the city can't tell the difference between the church and the city, that's contextualizing too far, okay? But if you've read any Tim Keller, you know he always has two extremes and he preaches the middle, right? <laughs> so the other thing you could do is you could be such a holy huddle, what we call it in English, and uh, you have such a, a fortress mentality that we're going to build a church of holy ones. We don't do anything the city does. We just read the Bible and pray and, hmm, and chant the Psalms. Okay, that's all we do. Okay? And you build such high walls around yourself that you never actually have any contact with the city. Okay, then, no matter how holy you are, you have no ability to witness, to fulfill your function as God's people to the city because your fortress is so big you never see the city and the city never sees you. Okay? So he says proper contextualization works at getting toward the middle, to be in the city, but not of the city, to move into the city, to live in the community that re represents the city in the United States. Uh, so many cities, in so many cities, according to Tim Keller, the church fle flees to the suburbs where it doesn't face the issues of the major city. No, we have to find out who is the city? What's the heart of the city? What's the cultural the philosophical, the arts, the narratives of the city. What is that? Can I move into that and witness in that context? And so in New York City, the arts community, and when I mentioned my wife in the arts, you know, this comes out of a Tim Keller type thinking that so, for so long in the West, 
the church has rejected the arts community because there's all kinds of strange things that happen in the arts community, okay? Uh, all kinds of new sexual practices and all kinds of uh, art that does not exactly inspire holy thought. And um, so it's all bad. And this is not a new phenomenon. It's been going on since the time of the New Testament. Um, so there's this tendency to not engage the city. Well, we know there's artists in the Bible, right? They were commissioned to, to build the, the tabernacle and then the temple. The art is a good thing when used to God's glory. So you've got to get into the arts community, build a relationship with the arts community, and that's why the city-to-city movement is full of artists because they're trying to engage them. And in that context, give witness to what art that brings glory to God looks like. Now, that's going to be messy. There's going to be some debate about that. And some people aren't going to be interested in the gospel, and they're going to continue to pursue arts in a way that does not glorify God. And that's the challenge. That's the accommodation question. How do you figure out how to be in the city, in relationship with the city, loving the city, speaking prophetically to the city, without being enticed to cross the line into to, uh, compromise of the sinful sort? Well, if you're in the fortress, you'll never be tempted. <laughs> if, you love, if you are the city, uh, you'll eventually forget God. So that's what that middle po- point is. How do you engage, communicate, relate, proclaim prophetically, engage um, in a way that, uh, that both preserves the faith and engages the city. That's the combination, you know, that's kind of his example of how it gets worked out. Other questions on contextualization, accommodation, and syncretism? Yes. Yes. Oh, no, I, uh, I lived in a communist country for 20 years, I can tell you. <laughs> um, in philosophical communism, not Soviet communism, okay, but in philosophical communism, the idea is half the same as Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. Right? You remember, after Pentecost, the Christians had everything in common. It was voluntary. Okay? It wasn't Stalin back there saying, hey, you give up everything. <laughs> right? So there's a sense in which communism reflects biblical community in which there's a greater interest in the whole than in the individual, and there's a sharing together uh, a mutuality of communal society that Asia is much more rich in than in the United States, that's very rich. That's advantages of communism. Now, if you have communism without a doctrine of sin, you're in big trouble. If Stalin takes that over, you're in bigger trouble, <laughs> particularly if you say anything bad about Stalin. Um, and so it's a problematic system. I could never endorse communism as a holistic system. The bigger problem with communism is that it's a utopian ideal that denies what's required in the real of this world. So I call that a doctrine of sin as a pastor, but you could also talk about civil statutes that are necessary and protection against corruption by leadership, which it doesn't adequately do. That's why Stalin could take it over and make his Soviet-style communism. That was problematic. Um, so I said something good about communism. Maybe that's a dangerous thing to do in Indonesia. Maybe I'll be kicked out when I get out of the room. But. I don't mean, you know, and I, knew, I know Soviet communism, not Chinese communism, um, but uh, in the philosophical realm, there's some things it's trying to do that are, uh, that are good and that actually find some resonance with the Bible. But when you choose to neglect these other parts of the Bible, you get in big trouble, which is the problem of syncretism. Other questions? It's on syncretism, on contextualization. I might just move to wrap up, if that's all right. Um, to wrap up, to bring... 
what I wanted to close with was an image that we're all familiar with. Would somebody read Matthew 5, 13? Matthew 5, 13. So what does this metaphor mean? Why does Jesus call us the salt of the earth? How in the ancient world, you've heard sermons on this before or thought about it before, how does salt function? What does Jesus, why does he use this as a metaphor to describe the people of God? What does salt do? It preserves the meat from rotting. Do I have a lot of refrigerators in the ancient world? No, no refrigerators. Okay, so you have meat that's ready to serve. Uh, you want it to last a little bit because it's very expensive. So how does it keep the meat from rotting? I'm not asking for a chemistry lesson, but if you have the salt over here and the salt block and the meat over here, it doesn't preserve it, right? How do you, how do you treat the meat? What do you do to make it, to preserve it? You break up the big piece of salt into little pieces of salt and then you rub it into the meat. You can't just dump it. You have to rub it into the whole piece of meat to work as a dehydrating and killing bacteria and that sort of thing. Uh, it is a preservative. It prevents the meat from decaying and rotting. But to do that, it must be broken into small pieces, spread out evenly, and dissolve. Okay? So we started this day talking about what it means to be a minority in a majority setting. We talked about contextualization. And we talked about Keller's example of how to, we've got to engage the city, how to not be so much like the city or so removed from the city that we have no influence, but we have to engage it while preserving our holiness. Um, so my conclusion to you all is, as the salt of the earth, we have to function in an overwhelmingly minority setting. Again, think about grains of salt. You've got to spread them out across meat, and you've got to rub it in, and they're going to dissolve, which means... Something dangerous is going to happen. You're going to be, you're going to lose yourself because you're rubbed into the meat. But only in doing that, only in contacting the meat, only in getting dirty and meaty, I don't know how you guys are. I don't like to pick up meat and mess with it, get all slimy. You know, <laughs> I like to spatula or something to pick it up with. He says, you're not going to be clean. You're going to get slimy. You've got to have contact. You've got to rub into the meat. And without losing your Christian character, you've got to dissolve yourself into the meat so that you will have that prophetic voice to preserve it from decay. If you sit in the salt block, the meat will decay. And there's no moral virtue in saying, ha, look at that world degenerating. That's not virtuous. Because if it were, God would not have become a man. Right? God would have sat content in heaven and said, ah, Look at that world decay. I knew it was going to happen. Oh, of course he did. God said, no, I'm going to become a man. I'm going to be broken. I'm going to give myself for humanity, and I'm going to die so they might be redeemed. And in a Christ-like way, we do the same thing as a minority. If you've put six kilos of salt on 100 grams of meat, what would happen? <laughs> I don't know. It wouldn't be very good, would it? <laughs> it's always a minority. It's always a small portion, but that's how it functions. 
It functions by being broken into small pieces by coming into deep contact and thus having a deeply preserving influence. And in doing that, salt serves its function. So that's how, what I would say, how to think about yourselves. You're a, a potent, powerful minority that has in, uh, the ability to influence the majority by being deeply embedded in that majority. Yes, it's hard. Yes, they'll be suffering. Yes, we'll lose battles. Yes, we'll feel overwhelmed. Um, but if we choose wisely how to present that holiness of God and the character of God, um, then I think we'll be functioning as a healthy minority. Questions? Any other thoughts, comments? I'm not going to listen to you anymore because you said something good about communism. <laughs> Yes. 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 If I were to address that question, uh, I'd try to simply say two things. Uh, one, there's different schools of thoughts on eschatology. In a post-millennial eschatology, would probably presume there would be a majority status at some point. I'm an amillennialist in eschatology, in which case I don't think we know what's going to happen in the future as far as majority-minority questions. Um, I wouldn't make what I said today an absolute rule, because the Bible doesn't say you will always be the minority. It just describes us in a minoritarian term. Um, so I don't know if the Bible says we'll be minority or majority. I tend to presume we'll be minority to the end. Um, but I'd be vague on that eschatological question, because I don't really know. And as an amillennialist, I would say the Bible doesn't say we're going to for sure be a minority. But most of the eschatological language presumes a minority status, right? I mean, why is the beast a dragon? It's the powerful one. You know, the woman's hiding. If you look at Revelation, right? So it's always described in the world being the majority, us being the minority. Uh, but in places where Christianity becomes the minority, majority, and in countries where uh, at least sociologically Christianity is the majority, there's a whole different set of questions you have to ask. Is how do you preserve authentic faith as a majority, which isn't what we're talking about today, but that's the questions you'd ask if you found yourself um, and let's pray that in our lifetimes, you'll be the majority in Indonesia, right? And then once you're there, well, then you have a different set of questions to ask. How do you preserve that same focus on genuine, authentic faith and on authentic um, witness when you cross 50.5%? So. But we're not quite there yet. We might not be there by the 19th of April either. So, <laughs> Can I pray for you guys? Father, we thank you that that you've called us to be your children, to be your disciples, to be following you. And we thank you that you've given us your Holy Spirit and that you are giving faithful witness to who you are uh, in our community through us. And I pray that you'd help us to be a faithful minority witness, meaning that you would bless us to be faithful in declaring and proclaiming who you are to uh, the majority world around us. It's strengthening each other and, and working together in unity, uh, particularly because we have to. And I pray for this uh, particular church, that you would help them to grow in their witness and grow in their support one for another and to, to find their voice and their ability to speak your truth uh, into this very big city. We thank you for this time together and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks for listening for a long time. I know it's a long time to be sitting and listening, and, but thanks for participating and comment in your comments. And I look forward to seeing you guys tomorrow.
Thanks.